We're in our series on love received about worship. We're focusing on the tabernacle. This uh, morning, we're going to focus on the specific plans for the tabernacle and the things that um, God told Moses and to his people to do in order to worship him. That's from Exodus chapter 26, if you want to turn in your Bibles there now. And as we get ready to read God's word together, let's pray for his presence and his power in um, our reflections upon this text. We praise you, O God, for your word. We praise you that you meet us in it. That it is not simply ink on a page, but instead it is power. Power to transform, power to comfort, power to encourage And Father, may that power be clear to us today through your Spirit because of the work of Jesus. May we gain understanding. May we grow in how we see the tabernacle, how we understand your plan for Israel, how we understand your plan for the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we continue to pursue you, follow you, love you, and go from this place wanting more and more to put you on display to the world around us. We're grateful that you meet us here today. Continue to do your work in us. We might grow more and more as a body together, a place of worship, a place of discipling, a place of encouraging, a place of love. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. From Exodus chapter 26, beginning of verse 1. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of hides of sea cows. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. 
make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west. At the far end of the tabernacle, the center crossbar is to be extended from one from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold, gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen. With cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman, hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north end of the tabernacle. Put the lampstand opposite it on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely t- twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and cast fry five bronze bases for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Abundantly clear, right? Fairly easy to picture this. Actually, if you've seen it, which I've seen a model of, it is relatively easy to picture. But it's not big. It's actually relatively small, maybe compared to what we might think. That's one end. From there to there, It's the short end. The short end of the tabernacle, the whole construction would fit into here and go basically as wide as that, probably just beyond the entrance to the doors in the lobby. 75 feet, 150 feet. It's not a big space. Actually, Relative to what was the nation of Israel at the time, it's an incredibly small space. Here's how I think about this. I went to Chino this week. I had a meeting uh, over there uh, on Tuesday night of this week. And I drove from here to Chino and back. And as I was driving, of course, if you're driving between here and Chino, you're reminded of Southern California urban sprawl, right? Right? I mean, you drive from here, you hit 
Colton, a little bit of Loma Linda, part of San Bernardino, yet Bloomington, Rialto, Fontana, eventually you get towards Ontario, and you end up in Chino. And between here and there, about, relative, there's probably just over a million people who live in about that area, which is striking because that means from here to Chino is about, pretty close, to the population of Israel wandering in the desert. A million people. And think about a million people being centered around 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. Think about the space that a million people take and they're centered around 75 feet wide, 150 feet long. In terms of the whole nation of Israel, it's a relatively small space. And if you want a picture, that 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, is curtains made like the plan. And inside the curtains, near one end, is a smaller tent, according to the plan. In front of the tent, you have the wash basin, you have the altar. Inside the tent, you have two sections, one bigger than the other, Holy of Holies, and then the, or, uh, the holy place, where the furniture was, it was that Pastor Will talked about last week. Really, in terms of the nation of Israel, this is not a big space. And remember what it symbolizes. This is the presence of God. And in some ways, there's a part of me that as I was reading it this week, I was wondering to myself, was God in some ways saying to his people, hey, guess what? I'm, the, I'm God, creator of the universe. I'm the God who pushes back oceans in order to let you through. I meet you on the top of a mountain in a thundercloud. I go in front of you as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And guess what? In this big, sprawling nation, this is what I need. This small space. It's enough for me. Oh, it needs to be according to my plan and my purpose. You need to be obedient, but it's enough for me. Some ways I wonder if God was by that very symbol saying to his people, and I'm enough for you. And I will make sure that you have everything that you need. And remember, this is the nation of Israel. What do they do? The whole time they're in the desert, they complain. There's never enough, never enough food. God gives them manna. Never enough meat. God gives them quail. Never enough water. Moses gets himself in, in trouble by striking the rock. In some ways, the tabernacle is a symbol of God not only having enough, but being enough. But that actually is all just an aside. Let's dig into the meat and potatoes of this morning's message. Right from the get-go, we see in this chapter, chapter 26, God is very particular about the plans for his dwelling place. has to be done his way. If Israel's going to approach him, it's on his terms, not theirs. And he is very particular. You see the measurements. You see the explanations. You see the things that he says 
that should be a part of every corner. I mean, literally think about this. He is saying this corner that no one is probably ever going to spend time in, at the very back of the tabernacle, I want you to do it in such and such a way because I commanded you to. And do it right. It's on God's terms that Israel approaches him. And it's in perfection. Perfect plan for the tabernacle. The perfect execution of the plan for the tabernacle. The perfect materials that they're supposed to use. All this is supposed to be perfect. Perfect observance of the rituals. When you come and you bring a lamb, it's to be a lamb without blemish for the sacrifice. Everything here is supposed to be perfect because God is saying, guess what? I'm holy. And when you're holy, anything that is not holy that comes into your presence pollutes you. So you can't come into my presence unholy, imperfect. Everything has to be perfect in my presence because I am God. He can't stand unholiness in his presence. And you can imagine how Israel might receive that. Oh, certainly, they would have wanted to be holy. They would have wanted to do everything right. They would have wanted to, as God called them to be, perfect, just as he is perfect. But you know, of course, there's going to be stumbling blocks to that. People make mistakes. People sin. My guess is that some of the craftsmen did beautiful work in some spots and maybe some other spots there were some things that they would have redone. Maybe they did. Maybe they had a repair crew that was a perfection repair crew in the tabernacle and went back and fixed all the things that weren't perfect or slowly began to degenerate over 40 years in the desert because you can well imagine that that would happen. Certainly Israel very quickly would have been frustrated by their inability to be holy just as we often are. Because we can feel that same pressure. Same pressure to be perfect. Same pressure to be holy. It's interesting, actually, just how much that desire for perfection continues to consume us. Go to a Christian bookstore and find out. Doug Spoolstra were here. He could tell you how many books are on the shelf that say things like 15 Steps to the New You, How to Get the Prayer Life You've Always Wanted, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, Things You Can Do to Be a Godly Parent. There's books like that all over the place, and they're written because they hit a hunger in so many of us, to be perfect before a holy God. How many of you are exactly how you want to be in your walk with God? Of course not. We're, we're, we're not there, right? I mean, we have things we want to work on. How many of you wish that you were a better prayer? How many of you wished that you could read the Bible in a better way? How many of you wish that you were better at telling people about Jesus? Okay? There's that hunger in all of us to grow and that desire for perfection, that desire to be holy, that desire to be like God wants us to be. And that's okay. 
There should be a godly conviction in our life to move towards things like prayer, like the Bible, like telling people about Jesus, like being a better mentor, like being a better parent, like being a better spouse, like being a better child. All of those things are certainly true. But the challenge that we face is that, again, that becomes a drive and a hunger, which becomes our primary means of interacting with God. It becomes something that can consume us. And you can imagine that the people of Israel in coming to the tabernacle would have been consumed by that. You can imagine just outside the tabernacle, hey, hey, Bob, Okay, we're coming for the sacrifice. Quick, get some spray paint because there's that little spot on the lamb and it's got to be perfect. Fearful that the sacrifice wouldn't be quite good enough. We have that too. We have that too. The challenge comes when we mess up through sin, weakness, or failure. And we can feel like we're back at square one It's clear God's holy, and we're not. I saw this actually a long time ago when I taught kindergarten for one day. Kristen, when she started out teaching, she started out in a small school in Alameda, California. There were three students in the kindergarten class, and on one day, kindergarten teacher couldn't be there. They were scrounging around for subs. They couldn't find any of their regular subs. And Kristen, in all her wisdom, said, you can call Scott. He's not doing anything today. It's half day of kindergarten. It was the longest three hours of my life. There was one child who pretended she was a cat and went under a table and wouldn't come out. She meowed and purred and tried to scratch me when I tried to get her out. Right near the end of the day, it was clear that one young gentleman should have asked me to go to the bathroom, and he hadn't, and he had done what he had done, but it was at the end of the day, so I ignored it, and his parents could clean it up. But there was one time, because you can well imagine when you're subbing, the teacher leaves you all these different projects that you can do with the kids to fill the time. And of course, if you're in kindergarten, you've got coloring sheets. So I sit down with the kids, and we have these coloring sheets that we're supposed to color together. And there's one boy who's coloring... And then he says to me, teacher, teacher, because, of course, they didn't know my name, and they didn't want to know my name, and I, at that point, I didn't really want to know theirs. So they, he, he said, teacher, teacher, I, I messed this up. I need another paper. And I looked at it, and he had done a fairly good job coloring. In fact, he was way better than the other kids. I'd give the guy a good A-plus on this coloring project that he was doing. But he was upset because there was one spot where he had went outside the lines. And he said, I want to do it perfect. So I gave him another sheet. That didn't work. He messed that one up too. I think he went through three sheets until he finally got to the right level of perfection that he wanted. And for many of us, we're just like that. It doesn't take much, and we color outside the lines, and we mess it up a little bit. And when we mess it up, we want to redo 
Start over. How many of you have been in that place in your life where you just want to clean the slate and start over? You're going to do it all different this time. You know that feeling? That's that desire for perfection. It's that desire for holiness. And again, it comes from this compulsion that we have to be worthy in front of God which again is a wonderful conviction. It's a wonderful hunger because God is holy and he calls us to be holy. But because we can't be holy, we have problem. There will never be any system. There will never be any redo. There will never be a retake that will fully and completely catch in your life, in this life. Because we are imperfect. And God knows that. He clearly, clearly knows that. Now, we can understand this better by looking back at the tabernacle. Remember who would see what in the tabernacle. There's spaces in the tabernacle that are particular for specific rhythms of worship and only certain people could go into certain spots of course the high priest was the only one once a year who could enter into the holy of holies and enter into God's presence the priests were the only ones who could enter into the holy place and make sure that the bread was right and the incense were right and all the things were in order. And you could only enter into the tabernacle when you were doing sacrifice. So everyone could come into the tabernacle, but only at certain times. And my guess is that it wasn't like a touristy walk around and see the parts of the tabernacle. In fact, you for certain couldn't go inside the tent You came there to be a part of the ritual of worship, sacrifice, bringing grain offerings, ceremonial washing. All those things were things that you came there to do, and when you did them, you left in and out. You didn't participate in all of the tabernacle, except everyone participated in one spot, one part. And actually, this is a really, really important thing. It's the only way in and the only way out of God's presence. And that's the gate. And the funny part is there's not much mention of it here. There really isn't. It just says one entrance. And it just says that that's going to be east side. That's going to be the place the only, only part. The high priest had to go in there when he eventually entered into the Holy Holies. The priests entered in there to do the most holy place. Everyone who was doing sacrifice, grain offerings, ceremonial washing came in through the gate. And what do we have in John 10, verse 9? Really quickly, hold your thumbs in Exodus chapter 26. And of course, we get to John 10, and you already know what this says. It's actually in light of a different type of parable that Jesus is saying to his followers. But he says these words. 
from verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, yes, certainly, this parable that Jesus is speaking to his followers has to do with sheep and actually has to do with being a shepherd. And there's a whole other teaching that we could do around that. But you know, you know that the people who were hearing this knew their tabernacle architecture. And when they would hear Jesus say to them, I am the gate, they would understand that to be more than just talking about the shepherd. If you want to enter into God's presence, and if you want to enter into God's presence as holy and perfect, there's only one way in, and there's only one way out. And that's Jesus. Jesus is already being talked about to the people of Israel all the way back, well, from the beginning of the text, but here in chapter 26 of the Exodus. This is Jesus showing up where God is saying, I want you to be holy, but guess what? You're going to mess that up, so I'll fix it for you. I'll fix it by giving you a gate that as soon as you walk in through that one and only gate, as soon as you get in the door, you are clothed with him and you are holy and we can hang out and your sacrifices will be worthy and your washing will be acceptable and your ritual and your rhythm of worship will be good. In his plans for the tabernacle, God is foreshadowing the only way to approach him in holiness. And remember, of course, that Jesus is the only way to approach a holy God. But also remember that Christ doesn't demand perfection for us to receive grace. Hear me here. Actually, let's say that together. Christ doesn't demand perfection for us to receive grace. Say that with me. Christ doesn't demand perfection for us to receive grace. Say that one more time. Christ doesn't demand perfection for us to receive grace. You don't need it to be perfect to receive grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting the reward that while you and I are still messy and bloody and filthy and gross and disgusting with sin, Jesus says, I got you. I choose you. I call you. I grab hold of you by the scruff of your neck and bring you close to me. And when you get close to me, something crazy happens. My perfection rubs off on you. My, my holiness embraces you. 
my ability to stand before God because I never messed things up has now been given to you. That's what grace is. And we receive it. But we also can remember that others receive it. It means that when we see someone else who is messy and bloody and broken and disgusting and gross with their sin, that we understand that through the grace of Jesus Christ, they can be acceptable before God. And if they can be acceptable before God, then they certainly can be acceptable before us. Means that we, through this gate of Jesus Christ, see the world with his eyes of grace. That no matter how messy it is around us, there is potential for the grace to be received from Jesus and a life to be transformed. Christ is not just the gate to God. He is also the one who pursues us while we are still lost and broken. He redeems us through his love. And then he brings us into God's presence, covered with his holiness, so that we can worship God unashamed. You are here broken, messed up, disgusting, bloody, and gross. Except Through Jesus, you can lift your hands and no matter how bad it is, God's grace covers you through Christ and your worship is received. Which means that our fuel for living is not about gaining some level of perfection in our walk with God. That's not our primary motivation. Certainly we can be convicted. We can be challenged. We can desire to move towards holiness. That should certainly be the case. That's sanctification, becoming more Christ-like. It's a, it's a good image of what it means to grow in our relationship with God, but that's not the primary focus of our worship. The primary focus of our worship is to give gratitude for the gate. Our rhythm is not a rhythm of perfection here. It's a rhythm of gratitude for God giving us Jesus Christ and his grace that cloaks us when we walk into his presence with Christ's holiness, his righteousness, his perfection and makes us worthy before a holy God. We give thanks for that. And we point others towards him because we want others to come along with us into God's presence. That's our motivation. That's our focus during worship. It's not being perfect. Grace covers that. It's about growing, sure. But it's certainly about saying thank you with our lives. Pointing others to Jesus. That's how we worship at the tabernacle. I want to read to you story of Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott is, she's now a Christian author, speaker, somebody who is held in high regard um, in the Christian community. 
for her story and what she says about a lot of things. But she wasn't always that way. And uh, in this book, which I've shared with you a lot, I read it at least once a year. It's called Messy Spirituality by Mike Iaconelli. He shares the conversion of Anne Lamott. Here's what he says. In her book, Traveling Mercies, Anne Lamott recounts her conversion to Jesus. Things were not going well in her life. Addicted to cocaine and alcohol, involved in an affair that produced a child whom she aborted, helplessly watching her best friend die of cancer. And during this time, Anne visited a small church periodically. She would sit in the back to listen to the singing and then leave before the sermon. Some of you folks do that too, but I don't want to hold you against you. During the week of her abortion, she spiraled downward. Disgusted with herself, she drowned her sorrows in alcohol and drugs. She had been bleeding for many hours from the abortion and finally fell into bed shaky and sad, smoked a cigarette, and turned off the light. After a while, as I lay there, this is her saying this, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed it was my father, whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love, and I squinched my eyes shut. But that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone. This experience spooked me badly, but I thought it was just an apparition, born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. One week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs, and this time I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was so ridiculous. Also, some of you think that. Okay. Like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time, and I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid, and I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction, and I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels, 
And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as, as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat and I stood there a minute. Then I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. Anne Lamott is the most improbable candidate for spirituality I could imagine until I consider my own candidacy. She seems hopelessly messed up until I remember the mess of my own life. I recognize the little cat running along at her heels. He's the same cat who's been hounding this messy follower of Christ all his life. No matter how hard I've tried, I've never been able to shake him. The beautiful thing about the grace of Jesus Christ is in many ways we don't receive it. It's given. It's actively given by God through Jesus to someone who may not even be willing to receive it. That's why it's grace. And it's crazy. And it's ridiculous. And it doesn't make sense. And it's unfair. And sometimes it feels like it shouldn't work that way. And yet, that's exactly how God engages with us. His people is the gate. The only way to God, the grace given us through Jesus Christ. May you and I, in our worship, desire more than all things to give thanks to Jesus for the grace that he has given to us and in our worship seek to point others towards the gate. Would you pray with me? We praise you, O oh God, that we know the grace of Jesus. That although it is godly to be compelled towards growth and learning and what it means to better be a, a better follower of you that it is perhaps even more godly to live thankfulness for what you have done for us in Jesus. To out of that thankfulness praise you with all that we are and all that we do. And Lord, in that praise, point others towards the gate, the only way. Father, may we fully and completely understand that that grace is free. It is a gift given. And as it is given to us, it is given to others, and that calls us towards seeing others with grace-filled eyes, no matter how messy it is. You redeem messy things. May we be patient. May we see with your eyes, with your heart, and desire more than anything for the world to know that Jesus is the way to God. And as he seeks others out and brings them to you, that together we give you praise and build your kingdom. We pray these things all in the name of Christ. Amen.